0: which you'll find on page 874 of your Pew Bible. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, which set up the three parables that follow. Bill fuller looked at the first two of these last week, and Rico will pick up in verse 11 with the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. So let's read from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, then 11 through 32. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, please be seated. As I said, we are thrilled to have Rico Tice with us this morning, and we thought we'd ask you a couple questions so they can get to know you a little bit before you bring us the word. The the first question is... Uh, Where do you get your name? Because when I Googled you and heard your accent, it was not what I was expecting with a name like Rico Tice.
1: Yeah, it's a stupid name. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: uh, I'm English by
1: background, but I was born in Chile. My dad grew tobacco in Chile. I... Um, Didn't come from a Christian family. My dad was in a tobacco multinational for 40 years and um, he was growing out there. So I was christened Richard. That's Ricardo in Spanish, shortened to Rico. Just to say it is Rico Tice, not Tico Rice. I've spent my life being called Tico Rice. It sounds like number 42 at the takeaway, doesn't it? (laughs) Anyway, here we are.
0: So not growing up in a Christian home, how is it that you came to faith?
1: Yeah, I um, am loving, a very loving home, but uh, not not Christian. Um, When I was at school... Um, My godfather, my dad's older brother, was killed in a cliff fall, 6th of August 1982, and no one in my family had any answer. There was just a sort of corporate shrug of the shoulder to this torpedo that hit us. And I remember thinking, you know, I mean, death was taboo. It just hadn't been discussed. And um, a maths teacher um, just said to me, when Christ rose from the dead, he rose to give us hope in the face of death. And I remember thinking, if that's true, it's the most important thing in the world. And I think that's what got me going spiritually, really, the death of a loved one. I kept a diary that year as well. Um, 19, actually, that was 1981, the year before, because I thought I was such a great guy The the world to record my life. Found out I was a selfish idiot. That was quite a good experience, too. <laughs> <didn't>? <laughs> Knowing I needed forgiveness, Haven't too. Heavens to us all. Right? Yeah, it yeah. wasn't great. Yeah.
0: Um, and what is it that you do now, Rico?
1: Well, sadly, I got the lowest qualification when I came out of college, out of university. I got a third. So, um, in terms of career opportunities, I realised the Episcopal Church was the only one available to me. So... <laughs> I got ordained. Although, as an Episcopalian, I would like to say I'm one of three converted Episcopalians in the world. There's me, there's someone in the Bahamas, and a third person in the west of Scotland. So, just to say, I am converted.
0: Great. Well, we're thrilled
1: that you're with us uh, today. Well, it's nice to have one of the three converted ones. I agree.
0: It's like, yeah, two of the three, yeah, yeah. Two of the three, yes. <laughs> right. Are you, a, are you
1: an Anglican by background, brother?
0: Um, a little bit,
1: yeah. Oh, gosh, Free good. Oh, and brother, I've, I've underestimated you, brother. <laughs> we should pray.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Father, thank you so much for Rico and for bringing him to us today. And, Lord, we praise you for the work of grace that you've done in his life, drawing him to yourself with eternal implications for his soul in Jesus Christ. Mm. And Lord, we pray, as we always pray before someone comes to to preach or teach, that you would stir up this grace within his own heart, that he would speak with great freedom, with great Mm. liberty, with great power, because he is speaking out of the overflow of grace that you have given to him. So Lord, be with us during this time. Would it be a help and a blessing, we pray in your son's name.
1: Amen. 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 Well, it's a great honour to be here and to be able to open the Bible with you. I wonder if you could turn to page eight seven four eight seven five 875 in the Church Bibles to the story we had so well read for us, this famous story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Luke is one of the biographies of Jesus. Eight seven four eight seven five. That may be unfamiliar for you to do, to open the Bible. Be a great help to me. Um, it may be that you're here um, and... Um, Getting the Bible open and looking at it is something that, again, is not familiar to you. Can I just say welcome particularly to you. And there is a course, Christian Explored, on Wednesday night for people who want to find out more. So we're particularly um, aiming at people like that who are here and who are saying, well, I'm, this is a beginning or, you know, I'm, I'm a bit distance from this. I'd love to know more. So that course on Wednesday I'll be mentioning again where you can look at the person of Christ in Mark's Gospel. And here's a big thing. Ask any question you want. Let me just pray as we come to the Bible. Father, thank you for the stories Jesus told. Please, we dare to pray. Speak to us in the very depths of our soul. And we ask, Father, that what we hear now, we'd never forget. Please, Lord, burn it into our hearts. Amen. Recently, a friend of mine who lives thousands of miles from here, and I wouldn't mention this, I guess, if I was closer was uh, ringing me and he, he picked up the phone, he rang me and he said, Rico, basically my doctor says I've had a bit of a breakdown. Frankly, that's because I've spent years in the business I'm in, telling people lies about the products I sell them. And the pressure of that has sort of broken me. I had a dreadful Christmas family-wise. So he and his wife are in, a, in not a good place at all in terms of their marriage. A great friend of mine, he said, has just lost his young wife from cancer. He keeps ringing ringing me. And so this guy got on the phone. And, you know, it's not a small thing in the English culture when someone running their own company picks up the phone and says, Rika, I'm reaching out. I'm reaching out. And to be honest, what would I say to him? And you know, what I wanted to do was take him to this story we've got in front of us, this story of the prodigal son. Because it's not just a story, it's about life, it explains life, it's about being human, it's about the mess life can be, it's about admitting sometimes, do you know, at this point in time, whatever the the front, I'm actually just hanging on by my fingernails. It's about an emptiness that can gnaw at the soul, and it's about broken relationships. Broken domestic relationships, and I can tell you in England, just about every family can relate to that. But above all, this is the point. Can I say, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, thank you for coming. This is a story about experiencing a relationship of such generosity, such love, that it can change any life, that it can turn any life around. That's why, as we look at it now, it's the most famous short story ever told. It's got such power, such meaning, such pathos. It's changed millions of lives. And my prayer is that it'll do that for you this morning. So can we look at it together? Unashamedly, I want to do that. It's a family story. It's about a father who has two sons. And a friend of mine tells it very neatly. He says, really, it goes like this. It starts at home. Then the younger son gets sick at home. And then so he just goes to being plain sick. Once he's left home, then he's homesick. It ends with him home again. The father's thrilled to have him home. He throws a party. And the older brother's sick about that. He says, basically, that's the story. And as Jesus tells the story, it becomes obvious in the story that the father is like God. And the two sons are like the two constituencies of people listening to the story. I wonder if you can see them. Chapter 15, verse 1, is the younger son. That's the tax collectors and sinners. And then the older brother is represented by the Pharisees and the scribes. They're in the story too, the teach the law. So that's the two constituencies listening to the story. And as Jesus tells this story, it's interesting as he mentions those people at the start, the context, 15, 1 and 2. It's as though he hands opens up a, 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 a mirror and he says, by the way, rebels or religious, moral or amoral, he says, you're all in the story. It's as though there's a mirror that comes up. Now, I'm such a self-centred peasant. I love being at the centre of stories. So, you know, I'm in it. And just to say you're in it too. We're, I don't know, as if James read the story, you thought, oh, I'm in there. If you didn't, you misheard it. You're in the story. Jesus holds up this mirror and we all have a walk on part. So let's have a look now and see ourselves in the story. I've only got two headings. The first is there's a deceptive contrast between these boys. Let's have a look down verse 11 as we kick off. See if you can see yourself. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And he begins with the younger son. He's what we might call the out-and-out rebel. And he says, verse 12, The younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So this younger son says to his father, he says, Um, Dad, he says, um he says, Dad, you know that life insurance policy you've taken out? And his father says, Yeah, he says, Well, Dad, I'd like my share now. And his father laughs, he says, Well actually son, those things only mature when I die. And the son says, Yeah, Dad, you got the point. I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Dad, I want the inheritance now. Now their culture was just like ours. You basically inherited from your father when he died, from your parents when they died. So he says to his father, I want your things, but I don't want you. And you know, there are many people all over England, all over this country who treat God like that. So they act as though God doesn't exist. He does. He gives them each breath, but they act as though he doesn't exist. They act as though he's an irrelevance. What they say to God is, we want your gifts, God. Family, friends, falling in love, food, fitness. We want the gifts, but we don't want you. And their slogan, it's in verse 12. I wonder if you can see it as we look down. Here's the slogan. It's very striking. Father, verse 12, give me. Give me my share of the property. Give it to me. That's the slogan, give me, and then you go, and I'll get on. And I think the question is, what was it that so attracted this young man to life without God? And surely the answer is independence. This was his independence day. And by the way, speaking as an Englishman, if any of you would like to apologise to me about the war of independence, (laughs) do see me afterwards. But this was his independence day. He wanted to be on his own. He didn't want to be dependent on God. So I wonder if you can imagine, as he walks down the drive with the remains of the life insurance in his back pocket, and as he walks down, he says, yeah, I'm free. I'm out of here. I'm done. I've got the money. I'm going. And it's fascinating, internally in his mind, he is convinced that independence, wild living, and pleasure will lead to happiness. And there are millions who think that independence, wild living and pleasure, it will make me happy. Well, that's where he's at as he goes. Give me and he's gone. Now, as I say, it may be that as we speak of him, you say, well, that's not really where I'm at. It may be you've got relations who are there, but you're not there. So let's have a look at the other son, and he's what you might call the establishment figure. And he tells us a bit about himself at the end of the story. Let's have a look down, verse 29. Look down, there he is, verse 29. He gives us a few of his own biography, autobiography, if you like. This is his opinion of what happens, 29. But he answered his father as he has a public row with him. He answered him, look, these many years I've served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Do you see? He's the dutiful child. He's joined the family firm. He's hardworking. He's loyal. Career-wise, I don't know, he's something boring like an accountant. It's obvious, isn't it? There it is. <laughs> and where his father is, he's close around. So if you'd expect to find the father in McLean Presbyterian, he'd be there. You know, he's a regular. He's an elder. He's respectable. He's a fine, upstanding chap, as we'd say in England. But it's, he's very different from his brother. I, I, do you see It's a deceptive contrast. He's not like his brother, but he's nothing like his father either. Verse 28, can we see as we look down? Nothing like his father. When the brother returns, he was angry and refused to go in. So the prodigal returns. The father's glad. The brother's angry. Typical accountant, lots of repressed anger. (laughs) The father greets him with open arms, the brother with clenched fists. This is interesting. The father says, my son, the brother, do you see verse 30 says, this son of yours. He says, I'm nothing to do with that scum. I'm not from the same womb, the same gene pool, this son of yours. Nothing to do with me. (laughs) So you see, this older brother thought he was the model of unselfishness. But actually, all he can think about is himself. In the midst of his father's joy and the brother coming home, all he can think about is himself. In verse 29 he uses the words I me or my four times someone one commentator has written the older son contrived without leaving home to be as far away from his father as ever his brother was in the pigsty absolutely self-centered i mean dutiful but self-centered and self-centered people are such a pain aren't they such a pain Samuel Butler wrote about two incredibly self-centred people, Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle. He wrote this, how good of God to cause Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle to marry one another and so make two people miserable instead of four. Well, that's right, isn't it? It's a deceptive contrast. You see, if you want to think about God and religion in term, and, and the Christian faith in terms of religion, then these two are very different. If you're thinking about religion, they're very different. But if you want to think about God in terms of a relationship, a relationship, which is how Jesus taught us to think of him, these two are similar. We're meant to see God. Do you know as we see God, he, you know, it's not a set of rules, although the rules are great. He's meant to be as central to our life as a ball is to a game. Imagine the Super Bowl being played, there's no ball, just going through the motions. God says, I'm to be as central to your life as a ball is to a game and these boys both boys that they're both out of relationship with their father okay one's religious the other's not one's respectable the other's not they're both out of relationship with their father now as we look at these two I don't know perhaps you're here this morning from the younger son's constituency perhaps you're back here and it's been a long time since you've been near church in fact as you come this morning you're slightly surprised to find yourself sitting here well can I say welcome thank you for coming it's great you're back And, you know, Wednesday night, that Christianity Explored course where you can look further at Jesus, please make time to come. Or perhaps as we come this morning, you're more of the older brother, respectable, conventional type. You can see a bit more of yourself in that. But if you're honest, hand on heart, your religion has as much in common with real relationship with God, in which he's as central to life as a ball is to a game, as a a cold, formal, frigid marriage has in common with a real lifelong love story. And the question is, how do you diagnose whether you're one of the older brother types? How do you see that? And I think the answer is this. I think this is the diagnosis. It's if your experience of religion, as you come along here, as you grew up, maybe for many years, if it leaves you just feeling slightly superior to other people. Not that you'd ever say it. But as you came out this morning and the rest of the road were asleep, there was just a slight little butterfly in your stomach of self-righteousness and you thought, well, what this country needs are more law-abiding, moral, tax-paying citizens like me. (laughs) At least I do my duty. It's what the family need too. You know, in all modesty, I'm the one that holds the family together. I'm the cornerstone. And there's just that little tingle of superiority. You'd never articulate it, but it's there. Can I say, if that is where you are, you're a million miles from real Christian faith. And you are in terrible danger spiritually. It's exactly the Anglicanism with which I was brought up. And it's toxic. Absolutely toxic. If there's that little sense of superiority. Well, that's the first point a deceptive contrast. The second is they both make an amazing discovery. They both discover they're equally welcome with their father. They both find it. it's clearer of the younger son. Let's rejoin him. Verse 13. Can we see as we look down? Here he is. Thirteen. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. Do you know the word squandered there in the Greek is a sense of hollowness. He wasted his life. You get one life, one short life. I've buried nine of my school friends, nine. You get a short life and he wastes it. And he finds instant gratification squandered again. his hollowness. He finds that it, you know, it melts in his hands. And what this young man finds, amazingly, actually, is not freedom, but amazingly, he leaves home to be free, independence, wild living pleasure, but he ends up, now this is so ironic, verse 14, in bondage. He left home to be free, but look where he is, verse 14. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, he began to be in need. So where does he find himself? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He ends up in a pigsty. He left home to be free. He's in bondage. He's with the pigs. And he's so lonely. I think verse 16 contains one of the saddest phrases in the whole Bible. Do you see verse 16, the end of it? And no one gave him anything. Can you imagine that? He's absolutely alone. His friends were, you know, everybody's the same. They're either takers or givers. He was surrounded by takers. When there's no money, there are no friends, there's no job. He's incredibly alone. He experiences cosmic loneliness. And so we come to the halfway point in the story. Because what does he do? Do you see what he does? Verse 17. But when he came to himself, in other words, suddenly he comes to, there's a sense here of, he became sane. He suddenly goes, how can I have been so blind? It suddenly comes on him. How could I have been so ungrateful? How could I have missed the obvious? How have I done this? So he comes to his senses about himself. He comes to his senses about his father. He sees himself as he really is in a pigsty. And he begins to... Some people find this so hard to surrender his precious delusions about independence. And and he admits he's lost, and he starts to long for his father. Do you see it? Do you see the longing as we look down? There he is. How many of my father's hired servants have more than bread enough? Verse 18, I'll arise and go back to my father and say to him, Father, you see, he's longing for something. What's he longing for? Home. He wants home. Now, home isn't a place... Home's a relationship. It's a relationship where I belong and I'm accepted. One psychiatrist has written, children who don't experience a home live all their lives with a fundamental inability of attachment. But this guy thinks of home, and you know, as he thinks of home in terms of the relationship, it's not conditional. In a far country, the relationships were conditional. We'll love you if your money's here. That's where I am in central London. We'll love you if, if you're good looking, if you're young, if you're successful, then we'll love you. If you're not, if you don't have those things, we won't love you. And that's why there's such drivenness in London. I must win or I won't be loved. I've got to win. But at home, at home, they know all about you. They love you anyway. If it's a loving home. So what does this man do as he comes to his senses? He changes his mind about himself. He changes his attitude to God. And he does something which is so hard. He swallows his pride and he realises, gosh, I hate doing this. He realises he's got to say sorry. Don't you hate it? If I've got to say sorry to someone, I pick up the phone. I find it's got teeth on it. I put it down. I have a cup of tea. The English always do that when we're panicking. You know, we have a cup of tea. I delay it all day. Recently, the Bishop of London said, London's biggest problem is BSE. We looked at each other, BSE, he said, yes, blame somebody else. And in married life, just to say, as I say this about married life, if you're married, can you keep your elbows in, please? I don't want to see the elbows flying out side to side. Elbows in and knees if you're married. But in married life, there are two phrases that are central to married life. Here they are, phrase number one. I'm sorry, I was wrong. i was wrong. I'm sorry. Some people will never say it. They're too proud. Phrase number two. That's okay, I forgive you. It's okay, I love you. Some will never say that. And do you know, marriages end because people won't say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. They won't say, I forgive you. But this boy knows... He doesn't just need his father's food or his father's fellowship. He needs his father's forgiveness. So we come now to the halfway point in the story or the heart of the story as we look down. Have a look down. Because what happens, you see, he's been rehearsing in the pigsty. Don't we do that? I'm sorry, I've sinned. I've, I've, you know, forgive me. Rehearsing it. And then verse 20. Do you see what happens in verse 20? What happens? And he arose. And he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, what does his father do? His father sees him. Does his father stand on the porch, tap his foot, and go, This better be good. This better be good. What does his father do? It's very striking. What does his father do as he sees him? And felt compassion. You know, the Boston Marathon, the carnage. And you saw people who've lost limbs, who've lost, I mean, a cup lost a little boy. And you know, as you saw that, your stomach turned, didn't it? There's that turn, as you just think what's happened. Well, that word compassion is what that means it's a turning of the stomach. What you felt as you saw that. And this father, the father feels that, and he ran to his son and embraced him. Now, what did he run across? Don't you think across a couple of the fields they'd have to sell off the life insurance? I reckon. And he runs. And, you know, in that culture it was very unusual for a nobleman to run. I mean, let me say this. Has anyone ever seen the Queen run? Can you imagine it? Imagine the Queen breaking into a trot. It would be too much. But this man runs. He runs, and then it gets very un-British. And you know, the British can't cope with this. I mean, psychologically, it's too much for us. We're so screwed up. He throws his arms around his son. And what's un-British is he embraces him, and he kisses him. It's present continuous. Over and over again, he embraces him. I mean, you know, the British, we can only do that to our mother and the dog. But this, the father, (laughs) throws his arms around him. Now, what we're being told here, and this is really important, is how do we experience God? You know, you might be here. We talk about God. We talk about God's love. How do you experience that? How do you get the father's kiss? It's one thing to know your father loves you. It's another to have him embrace you. Well, it's here. Three steps to knowing God's embrace. First of all, the first thing you do, verse 17, you come to your senses How could I have been so ungrateful? Secondly, you realize it's at home where you belong and you're accepted at home. And thirdly, and this is the moment of the Father's embrace, you say to the Father, you say to him, Oh, Father God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And as you do that, you feel the Father's embrace. It's why Christians read their Bibles each morning. Because as you do that, you know, you see your wrongdoing. The Bible, it's like a mirror. It shows you what's wrong. And then you say, oh, Father, forgive me afresh, please. And you feel his embrace. So I don't know how your morning Bible reading's going, brother, sister. But if you've stopped, start again. And would you pray for me that I'll do mine? It's always a battle. It's so wonderful when I do. You see, although this young man had forgotten about his father, his father hadn't forgotten about him. His father was there waiting, watching. You may have been in a far country a long time. He's waiting and he's saying, where are you? From the start of the Bible, that's what God says. Where are you? He's waiting for you. Well, then the boy goes straight into the rehearsed speech, doesn't he? You know, he's got it in his heart. Out it comes. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He only gets halfway through. The father says... Bring the best robe, a sign of honour. Put a ring on his finger, a sign of authority. Put shoes on his feet. A slave didn't have shoes. A servant didn't have shoes. A son had shoes. Go and kill the fattened calf. A little boy was asked in Sunday school, and who was not pleased to see the younger son come home, he shot up his hand and said, that would be the calf. (laughs) And, And what we're being told here, now this is crucial, what we're being told here, we're being told about the generosity of God about the kindness of God. He's so kind. He doesn't treat us as we deserve to be treated. Now, there's some people here, and the reason that you hold God at arm's length is that you think, if I go near God, I've got to hold him at arm's length. If I go near him, he's going to grind my face into the dust. So actually, I keep this at arm's length. Can I tell you, the fact that that's what you believe about God means that the devil has affected your thinking. Because God is not like that. He is so generous. He is so kind. He doesn't treat us as we deserve to be treated. A few years ago, I was at home on my day off, and I was teaching my nephews, age two and four, to play rugby. You've got to start them young. So I was with the four-year-old scrummaging. So we were down, down, sort of locked in a a sort of scrummage. And the two-year-old, Patrick got so excited that he picked up a plant pot and started emptying it all over the carpet in order to make a field. And when I next looked up, there was mud everywhere. He had trashed the room. And at that, point, at that point, my mother, his grandmother, walked in and her sitting room was trashed. And she walked over to her little grandson. She picked up the plant pot, she put it on one side. She picked him up and she kissed him. And she said, let's go and have lunch. And as she carried him out of the room, he looked over her shoulder at the other nephew and I on the ground and he went like that. (laughs) You see, his grandmother knows what he's done. She'll clear up the mess and she loves him anyway. And you know, that is what it means to be Christian. God knows what we've done. We should be thoroughly ashamed of ourselves. He clears up the mess. He loves us anyway. I wish it was different from that after 30 years. It is what it's like. And it's easy to say sorry to someone who's embraced you, who'll clear up the mess. Oh, gosh, I do hope you have that picture of God's generosity. He is so kind. But actually, the younger son here was fortunate, wasn't he, to be seen by his father on the road and not by his older brother. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I mean, the older brother wouldn't have been so generous, not least because of Verse 31. Verse 31 tells me he wouldn't have been so generous. Look what the father says as they are in this row. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, the other son has spent his inheritance. So everything that the younger son is given the robe, the ring, the calf ultimately, they're the older brothers. He's going to inherit them. And there's a big cost. To this younger son coming home, there's the robe, the ring, there's the calf, and there's no way this selfish, stingy older brother would pay it. But you know, Christians have a different older brother. In Romans chapter 8, we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ is our true older brother, and he is not stingy. He earned everything. Christianity explored on Wednesday. You can look at his life. He earned everything. He earned the robe. He earned the ring. He lived a perfect life. And yet at the end of his life, what happened? He was stripped and they cast lots for his robe. He didn't get the fattened calf on the cross. He got hyssop and vinegar. And this true older brother, as he dies on the cross, says, the only way for you to be clothed is for me to be stripped. The only way for you to get the ring and the robe is for me to lose mine. Ultimately, the only way for you to be saved is if I pay in death and blood for you to get home. So there is one way to go to hell. If you want to go to hell, there's one way to go. You have to trample over the cross of Jesus. So Jesus stands before us this morning, arms outstretched, and he says, I'm blocking the way to hell. I've paid for you to go home. I've paid in death and blood. Please go home. But if you want to go to hell, you can. Just trample over the cross. The Father is so generous. In his generosity, he sends the Son, who pays. But if you ignore those things, it's desperately serious. So the message here is, come home. Please, come home. God won't be angry. Christ has paid. Just come. Come home. God is so generous. And just put on one side this foolish independence. Every breath is from him. It's foolish. Well, I must close. But let's just close with one last look at this older brother. You see... There he is as the younger son comes home. And can you see what happens in verse 28? Have a look down in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now, just to say, a Jewish audience that read that from one of the Old Testament books, Deuteronomy, would have said, don't do that to your dad. Don't do that to your parents. Don't publicly oppose them and humiliate them by having a row like that publicly. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing as heading off to a far country. In Deuteronomy 21, to publicly humiliate and rebel against your parents like this, public row, was a capital offence. It was a stoning offence. That's how serious they took the breakup of community like that, the behaviour of young people. They didn't believe in corporal punishment, beating, capital punishment. I'll tell you what, it would sort out the schools, wouldn't it? Don't you reckon? <laughs> We've had a bit of a problem with Haskins too, he'll be hanged on Thursday morning. (laughs) Sorry, you'll think, I'm going home, I'm going back to London, sorry about that, I couldn't help it. It just came out of my filthy heart. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, is that this is a desperate thing that he does. And what's fascinating, now please look at this with me. What's fascinating is his weapon of rebellion against his father. What stops him going into the party? What stops him knowing the father's embrace? The father comes out to embrace him. What stops him knowing that kiss? Do you see? It's in verse 29 and it's fascinating. Verse 29. This is what stops him going in. Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What stops him going in, in this public row, is his own goodness because I'm good, because I'm decent, because I keep the rules, God, you owe me. I've got nothing to be sorry for. You're very fortunate to have me here, but I will make up the rules. And one of them is that you will not be generous to this indisciplined, whoremongering brother. That's not in the script. I make up the script. And you see, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the teachers of the law. They did not think that they needed forgiveness from God. And so many are like that. You can tell them because they say, look, I'm a good person. And because I'm good, God will accept me. That put me into the ministry. From the 1st to the 8th of April, 1988, I watched my grandmother die. And she died without faith in God... She died saying, because I'm a good person, God will accept me. Absolutely no need of God's forgiveness. It put me into the ministry seeing her die without Christ. I, you know, that, that blight, that toxicity is, is in my family. We're good people. We certainly don't need forgiveness from anyone, we do our duty. My performance will get me accepted by God. It's where the older brother is. The weapon of rebellion is my own goodness. So you've no need to say sorry. You've no need for the cross. What do, you need? what do you need Christ to die for? I'm good enough as I am. It's a desperate thing and yet I can tell you there are Anglicans all over my country who in church this morning, that's the basis of their church going. I'm a good person, God will accept me because of that. Well, do you know, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Because actually it's unfinished. We, we, we don't know if the elder brother went in. We don't know if the younger son was a flash in the pan. The reason we don't know is that Luke intends us to write our own endings. So we're left. We don't know what these two boys are going to do, ultimately, with the father's love. We don't know. So aren't. the question is, what will you do? And that's why uh, uh, my friends, Paul and Judy Chelson, they'll be at the front afterwards. Why not come and sign up for Christianity Explored? If you just say, look, I need to write my own ending. I don't have all the information. Christianity Explored, looking at Jesus Wednesday night, that sounds great. Please make time to do that. Get the information to write the rest of your story. Look at the death of Jesus. But some people will say, well, actually, do you know, I know this is true. I've been in a far country... Or I know this is true, but you know, Rico, honestly, as I've come along to McLean, honestly, I come along and I do it out of duty because of my own goodness. But when push comes to shove with God, actually with that goodness, I rebel against God. I say, I'll make up the rules now. I've done enough for you, Lord. Done enough. And if you're in that place and you're not Christian, can I say to you, please come home. God is so generous. He's so kind. Please come home. Please don't muck around with the death of Jesus any any longer. On the basis of what he's done, say, Lord, I'm sorry and I, I want to come home. And you know, at one level, I am on my knees pleading with you to do this. The Lord Jesus does speak of a place called hell. He does it with tears in Matthew's Gospel. But that's where we go to pay for our sin if we don't allow him to pay. It is a real thing. It's desperately serious. So here's a prayer to come home. I'm going to say it once. If it's right for you, second time through, when I say it slowly, why not echo it in your own home and come home? He's so generous. Come home. Come home. Here's the prayer. I'll say it slowly. And again, if it's right for you, echo it the second time through. Hear it first to see if it's right. Father God, thank you so much that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die so that I can come home. I put my trust in what Jesus did on the cross so that I can be forgiven and ask you to be my master. Please come into my life and take complete control of it. Well, that's the prayer to come home. And I'll say it slowly now. And if it's right for you, why not do it? It's a wonderful thing. He's so generous. So here it is. I'll do it phrase by phrase. Father God, thank you so much for sending your son the Lord Jesus to die so that I can come home I put my trust in what Jesus did on the cross so that I can be forgiven and ask you to be my master please come into my life and take complete control of it. Amen. Well, if you've prayed that prayer, I'd love to give you a book afterwards. I wrote this book for rugby players. No, letters long, no words longer than five letters. They're bits to colour in. It's perfect for rugby players. Um, and it's sold very well this year. I've sold four copies. It's gone very well this year. So I'd love to give you a book. <laughs> But also I'd love to introduce you to my friends Paul and Judy Chelsons for the course on Wednesday night. Come and just talk to them about the course. That would be great. If you've prayed the prayer, come and chat with me. We'll be at the front on my right afterwards. Thank you very much.